At age 81, Dwight Chapin has decided for the first time to write about his years in politics and the White House, which happened over 50 years ago. His book is called The President's Man, The Memoirs of Nixon's Trusted Aide. In his first chapter, Chapin writes, quote, I knew Richard Nixon well. I started working as an organization field man during his California gubernatorial campaign. I became an advanced man at the beginning of 1966, the off-year election cycle, and then his personal aide in 1967. Chapin then continued, In the White House, I served as appointment secretary. I had the office next to him. Unquote. However, his time working for Richard Nixon didn't end well. Dwight Chapin, the name Dick Tuck, what does that mean to you? Well, it means it instantly means to me a Democratic prankster. Dick Tuck was a character, uh, one of a kind. And I actually was a friend of Dick Tuck's. We got along, knew each other, ran into each other at various events. I never forget running into him at a Republican convention. And he had every conceivable credential available hanging around his neck, more so than most of my friends had. But anyway, he was a Democratic prankster, pulled any number of different uh, shenanigans on Nixon and on other Republicans over over the many years. I interviewed him in 1996. I want to run a 50-second clip from that interview, and then we'll continue talking about Dick Tuck. I didn't go to the debate. He was covered there. But I went to Memphis, and that's where Nixon was to go the next morning. Well, I was there, and the plane landed. In those days, we used to come down a ramp, you know, in the good old days. You had fresh air. When you even had fresh air in airplanes then. Uh, 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 you uh, and a wonderful matronly lady with a big Nixon button. The camera started to roll, ran up and kissed him, and she said, Don't worry, Mr. Nixon. She said, You lost last night, but he'll beat you next time. Well, his face dropped. and so. Well, was, a week later, Time Magazine reported since, since I was there. That this, you know, that this, I suppose we'd call it spin control now or something, that I had something to do with that old lady who had the pin on and who, did, who made the, uh, 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 I, did you? <laughs> uh, well, I, I probably did. <laughs> Dick Tuck had what impact on your life? Well, Dick Tuck had a huge impact on my life in the sense that one morning in February of 1971, I was called into the Oval Office, and the president was sitting there along with Bob Haldeman, his chief of staff, and they said to me, do you know anybody that can do Dick Tuck-type activities for us in the upcoming 1972 campaign? And I thought about it and went out and recruited my good friend Don Segretti to do Dick Tuck activities. So uh, that was at the epicenter of uh, what became uh, the episode that involved my aspect of being involved in the thing we call Watergate. So what happened after you hired him? After I hired Don Segretti, uh, Don went out and did a number of different what we would call Dick Tuck type things, which were basically pranksterism type uh, activities on Democratic candidates. And the important thing from my point of view was that I had hired Don to do this. And he went out as a free agent. And for the most part, what he did, I was not knowledgeable about. As my book makes clear, uh, Don was on his own, basically. And I was busy with planning the trip to China and to Russia and other presidential duties. 
Did you personally ever have responsibility for paying him? I did not pay Dick Tuck. He was paid by Herb Kambach, uh, and that arrangement was made by Gordon Strawn. Gordon Strawn was another White House uh, assistant to Bob Haldeman, and Gordon had been a fraternity brother of Don Segretti's at UFC. And once uh, the decision was made that we would use Don, I turned over the uh, payment responsibilities and, and how all that would work to Gordon, who then worked it out with Herb Kambach. Seems like the, one of the issues was whether or not Donald Segretti ever reported to you on some of the dirty tricks that he conducted, and which led to a grand jury situation where you testified and he testified. Is that where you were caught allegedly lying about your relationship with him? Uh, yes, what happened uh, on that was that when Don testified to a grand jury, he said that when I hired him, one of the reasons that Dwight hired him was because he was a lawyer and he would know what was right and what was wrong. So when when that happened, uh, it made it almost impossible for them to indict me for anything that Don did. But the prosecutors took me to a grand jury and asked me uh, a series of questions about Don and his activities. There were some things that Don had done that indeed I was either semi-aware of or had some, some piece of knowledge that he had done that. And when they asked me particular questions, I responded not to the best of my knowledge or not that I recall, thinking they were going to ask me more questions. And they never did. And so what ended up happening was I got indicted for basically sloppy answers to the questions that they asked me. It's, it's, I, I've got it detailed in the book. It's obviously uh, uh, complex and hard to get across in a, in a couple of minutes here. But, but it was definitely... Uh, my my responsibility to tell the truth, and it appeared, and obviously it appeared to the grand jury that I had hedged on the truth, and therefore that's why I was indicted. Did his answer to questions before the grand jury have anything to do with ending up getting you indicted? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, I, I really have never read Don's uh testimony to, to, to the grand jury, but I'm not aware of his saying anything that led directly to uh, my indictment. My indictment was because of the way I answered questions, not for anything that Don did. The reason I ask you these questions about Donald Segretti and the grand jury is that if it hadn't been for Dick Tuck and it hadn't been for the president wanting dirty tricks in the campaign of 72, and it hadn't been for your friend Donald Segretti, would you have gone to prison? No. Absolutely not. But I, I do want to uh, say that the president, it was not that the president wanted dirty tricks in the campaign. It was that the president was reacting to what had happened to him over many years and the kinds of activities of shenanigans that were pulled on him. And he wanted us to be pulling some shenanigans too. So uh, the, the whole dirty tricks thing in my mind kind of gets everything out of proportion to what it really was. I mean, some of the stuff was incredibly humorous and, and was not designed to cause uh, any kind of actual harm to a candidate. Do you think that is necessary in politics? I believe it is. No, I do not believe it is necessary in politics, but I do believe it happens continually. We have stories every election cycle about some shenanigans that are going on.
You say in your book that, and I don't have a direct quote in front of me, but you say that Richard Nixon was paranoid. You give us your own uh, sense of what paranoid meant to you and when you saw it in him. Well, I think the joke is something like even paranoids have the right to be paranoid or something. Um, I, I have always pushed back on the idea that Nixon was paranoid. I believe it's a uh, stick that people have hit him with over the many decades of his career. He, what he was, was very apprehensive about motives and and about the motives of the the press and the Eastern liberal establishment, and he, he he was he was overly cautious to the point that he would suspect something was happening before it might even happen, and so the easy way to do it was to put a label on it and call him paranoid. I deal with that in the President's Man Man uh, quite extensively. Why did you want to write a book at your age? I wanted to write a book at my age because I think I'm at a better age to look, write a book and to look back over the history of my own career and my life with Richard Nixon. Uh, so many of the books that are written come immediately after somebody walks out, out of the White House door. I mean, it's like... Ten minutes later, we have a book on the shelf. I I waited. Many people over the years had, had heard my stories or talked to me about various aspects of my White House career and and felt, hey, why don't you write a book? And I, I, I had been thinking about it. And then what happened was one of my grandchildren came to me. We were visiting in Kansas City. And there was a little knock on the door, and my grandson, who was probably seven or eight at that time, uh, looked up at me, and he, he calls me Pips. And he said, Pips, did you work for a president? And I said, yes, Matthew, I did. And he said, but did you go to prison? And I said, yes, I did, Matthew. And he said, well, did the president go to prison, too? And, and I mean, this little voice and I, I, I invited him in to sit on the bed and I said, Matthew, someday when you get older, I'm going to tell you the whole story. And that was really a trigger point for me. I felt that it was necessary for two, two major reasons. One, for my family and the generations of my children, grandchildren that are to come for them to know what happened to their grandfather and great-grandfather. But more importantly, uh, I had found in t terms of talking to people over time that I had stories and knowledge and information on Richard Nixon that gave a different, a different viewpoint of the man, not, not to be defensive of him. That's, that was one thing that I, I wanted to make sure I, I avoided in my book. i I, I wanted to tell what I knew about him. I wanted to, to give the history of the man who I saw, what he was about, and uh, why I thought certain things that happened to him transpired. Several times in your book, you talk about mentors, and one of them was Richard Moore. Uh, I don't know. I can't remember whether you called Bob Haldeman a mentor or not, but you certainly said you were very close friends of his. Uh, what What did you look for in a mentor, and what did they do for you? One of the blessings of my life has been the number of mentors I've had over the years, and the tremendous gift they have been to my career. Bob Haldeman probably would be one of the the key people to mention because he took me as a very young man and tutored me and, and brought me along and actually made my whole involvement in the world of Nixon possible. 
Then there was Herb Kambach, who was the person that first hired me in 1972. And, and he advised me on my career all the way through the White House and then on into later life. Richard Moore, you mentioned, and Dick was a senior person in the White House with phenomenal judgment. And I, I, a lot of my mentors I, that I went to, keep in mind, I was a very young man when I came into the White House. I was in my late 20s, and we had these more senior men around that, that I would go to for advice and for counsel and who, by the grace of God, were kind enough to help shape my career. Tex McCrary, one of the great public relations men of all time, he he trained uh, Barbara Walters and Bill Sapphire and any other number of people, and and Tex became one of my great mentors. Uh, He was never on the White House staff, but he was of counsel to us, uh, not even in a paid position, and we just, we would tap his tap his uh, reservoir of knowledge and he and he was one of my mentors so you know how how did all this happen i for some reason these men were kind enough to share their experience and their uh their 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 wisdom with me and by the grace of god uh i got it you do, though, in your book, say that Richard Moore, who was one of your mentors, lied to you. Yes. Well, Richard Moore uh, was part of a uh, small group of men, to include the president of the United States, John Ehrlichman, Bob Haldeman, and John Dean, who came to a conclusion while I was on a vacation in Ireland after the 1972 campaign, uh, came to, they came to the conclusion that I would be leaving the White House. And Dick Moore was involved in that. And when I went to talk to him, uh, after I learned that I was going to have to leave, leave the White House, he never told me and that he had been involved in these conversations. In fact, he acted surprised. Now, I've been around politics long enough, and I've and I have learned enough to know that sometimes men have to uh, be a, a a part of a decisionary decision making process, and and have to hold that in confidence, even when some young man comes in and expects them to be telling them uh, what in this case would have been the truth. And I, I cleared the air with Dick. I let him know that I knew that he had not been truthful with me. And he apologized to me. We were at a luncheon together uh, with my friend Henry Cash and the three of us when all this came up. And Dick apologized, and I said, Dick, I forgive you. I understand how it works and why you had to manage it the way you did. And, of course, my book is full of a lot of, of different stories that where, where, where we find these kinds of contradictions or uh, ways that it works when you're in the White House. And it's not always pretty. I mean, there are... There are situations like this that happen, and they have to be dealt with, and they appear so much different when you put the public uh, light on them. You were not involved in Watergate. Uh, My memory is you didn't testify before the committee, or did you? I I never appeared before the official Watergate committee. I was my activities were uh, limited strictly to the dick-tuck, pranksterism type stuff. You report to us that the FBI came to see you in your office to interview you. And the next morning, it ended up on the front page of the Washington Post. What was the interview about and how did it get to the Post within 24 hours? 
That's a remarkable story to me. Uh, I had had, I believe it was on October 10th, uh, a Sunday, there was a front page story in the, on the Washington Post that tied me into Don Segretti. And the story was a very explosive one that also tied us, tied both Don and me into the activities by the committee to reelect reelect the president and Gordon Liddy and the whole Watergate group. I mean, it was a uh, an expose that was really uh, rocked us. And uh, I I can remember thinking, what in the world is going on here? I mean that. The story itself, uh, ha- the the way that it, it spun itself out, did not seem to me to be be truthful. Uh, and but it, it it ended up being the litmus point in terms of uh, leading to my having to leave the White House because all of a sudden. I was a uh, victim, if you will, or in this case, a participant uh, with by hiring Don Segretti, and it was directly linked to the president. Now, I'm not sure, 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 Brian, if I completely answered your question. Uh, can you help me? recall exactly what your ending part was yeah what i was interested in is how in the world did you be were you interviewed by the fbi in your office one day and the information got out to the post the next day yeah okay thanks thank you very much what happened was so that so that story ended up on that sunday on tuesday uh i was told that the fbi wanted to talk to me and The meeting was not in my office. It was in John Dean's office. John Dean left the office and his deputy, Fred Fielding, stayed there. And the FBI asked me probably for an hour all about the story that had been in the Sunday paper. And I answered every question. And to the best of my knowledge, I answered every question honestly. Then the next morning, that that details of that interview were in the Washington post and the agents came back a couple of days later and they spent the first, they wanted to ask some follow-up questions and they spent the first 10 minutes uh, talking to me uh, and apologizing, letting me know they had no idea how that information had ended up in the Washington post. Well, obviously we came to find out later that there was Deep Throat, who was Mark Felt, who was the number two guy at the uh, FBI, and that when when the agents had gone back from the interview on Tuesday and passed uh, their their notes on into the chain of command, they went all the way up to Mark Felt, and he leaked it to uh, uh, the, the men at the Washington Post. You know, we never saw any outrage about the fact that the number two guy at the FBI was leaking to the Washington Post. Do you have any idea why not? Well, because, first of all, at that time, we didn't know where the leaks were coming from. We did not know until much later that the uh, that, that Mark Feld, the number two guy at the FBI, was leaking the information. And, of course, it's outrageous, in my opinion. And, and of course, and we have learned in recent time that, that there's a lot of cleaning up to be done at the FBI. This, this leaking thing had been, was a pattern, and it evidently went back into the Hoover days. Now, I, I came from the school of being a little boy who ran to his uh, – radio set every afternoon after school to listen to this is the FBI on on the radio and and grew up believing 
in the integrity and the honesty and everything else of the FBI. So to me, this this leaking by the top brass of the FBI uh, was not only outrageous, it, it, it was unlawful. They had taken an oath to defend the Constitution and, and in my opinion, uh, did not live up to it. You mentioned that John Dean was in the office with the FBI, and you say some. John left. He did leave. Okay. John, John, John. The agents came in. John was there along with Fred Fielding, and then John excused himself and left. That this is I am talking about the October. It would have been like October twelfth or thirteenth, whatever that date was. John did not stay for that interview. Again, what I'm getting at is, and in your book, you are really critical of John Dean. You point your finger at him. You suspect that he was, uh, for whatever reason, out to get you. And I want to give you a chance to talk about that. And uh, again, it goes back to the Dick Tuck, the Don Segretti, the meeting with the president, the dirty tricks, and then John Dean. And why did they want to get you? I, I don't believe that John Dean wanted to get me. I believe that John Dean got himself into a, a situation where he had to defend and himself and do everything possible to keep uh, himself afloat. And that is what my book is about. And that is what is significant in my book. We, we prove without a doubt by in our uh, exhibits in the back of the book. Uh, we we have conversations of Dean with the president where Dean is not forthcoming to the president. In fact, uh, on the tape that is known as the cancer on the presidency tape, we hear John Dean say, uh, sir, you know, I need I need to tell you everything that's been going on because you don't know. This, this is nine months after Watergate happened. He's been meeting with the president, talking to the president, and all of a sudden he tells him he has, needs to fill him in on what, what the truth actually is. And the other thing is that in, in 1974, I found uh, an FBI report that is in the uh, appendix. It, it hadn't been hidden. Nobody ever publicized it or, or, or sat and, and focused on it. But this FBI report that was done to the director, which documents the FBI's participation in the whole uh, Watergate episode, labels John Dean, they use the term, the master manipulator of Watergate. And so my, my book does not, does not apologize for Richard Nixon. It does not try to change the, all of the, the history of, of so much of Watergate. But if what it tries, what, what we do is we, we position John Dean right where he belongs. At the very outset of the entire Watergate matter, he could have told the truth and corrected it, and the president would have never had to leave office. But John Dean was more interested in protecting himself. You say that after you spent nine months in Lompoc Prison in California, the only person that wrote you after it was over was John Dean. Why did he write you, and what was your reaction to it? Uh, it was a, uh, a wire, a telegram, uh, which were used back in, in that era, and it was from John and Modine uh, uh, wishing me well, the fact that I was getting out of Lompoc that day, and wishing me well. I have no idea why it came other than I would hope that there was a little guilt in his mind about where I had been spending nine months. Have you talked to either Donald Segretti or John Dean since those days? Uh, I have not talked to John Dean. Don Segretti and I are wonderful friends. We are in touch with each other 
constantly. Uh, when we're in California, uh, I try to have dinner with him and with his lovely wife. Uh, they're wonderful people. And Don, Don was a victim of circumstances, was very hurt. Uh, Don basically did absolutely nothing wrong. Uh, and I have always felt bad that I got him into uh, this dick-tuck role and the consequences that he faced. I want to run some audio of an interview I did with Tim Neftali about his interview with you. And anybody that wants to see those interviews, I assume can get them through the Nixon Library, but also they're on YouTube, of you sitting with Neftali for how long, by the way? I, I believe uh, Tim interviewed me for three or four hours. Yeah, I watched three hours of it, I know for sure, so that if there's others there, I didn't see it. But anyway, here's where, here's Tim Neftali talking about you. He came to the interview, which we did in New York, um, ready to talk uh, and to, to preserve his story. It was an amazing interview. Um, it got Chapin, I believe, into trouble among his colleagues and led to a controversy for the oral history program because Chapin said something on tape that he did not say to the Senate. He didn't say in the trial. Uh, and something that the Nixon um, group had always denied. That was? And that was that it was Richard Nixon who was there when the Dirty Tricks campaign was, was ordered, that Nixon, Nixon was too smart to order it, but he was sitting in the room with Haldeman. It was done in Haldeman's office, which is why it wasn't taped. Your reaction? First of all, Haldeman and the president talked to me in the Oval Office. And I never, ever hid anything. I even told the grand jury when I was called in there, that the president and Bob Haldeman were the ones that wanted me to find a Dick Tuck. That has always been part of the official record. There, you, will, you cannot find anyone in, that would say that in some way I got, quote, in trouble or whatever else with other Nixon people uh, because of the fact that uh, this was hidden and I exposed it. Let, let me tell you this. Uh, I, I did go to prison because I was convicted by a jury in Washington, D.C. of committing perjury in their opinion. I have never felt that I did, but the jury in Washington, D.C. did feel that I committed perjury. I have focused, particularly after going through this episode, on my uh, trustworthiness, my honesty, my, and that is what I have tried to do in this book. I have, I have reached within myself to make certain that to every degree possible, every word in my book, The President's Man, is truthful. And what Tim Naftali is saying on that tape is not truthful. Let, let me ask you about Tim Naftali for a moment. I've interviewed him several times, and he's been on. Um, the people, and you know them, you mentioned them in your book, uh, were furious at the Nixon Foundation Library that Tim Naftali was running it. What What is your view? You know, you're not in the. I don't think you're on. You're not on the board, are you? I am not on the board, but I'm. No, I'm not on the board, but I'm sure well aware of all of the issues that are confronted on the in, with this particular issue. I mean, if you just look at Tim Naftali, the person, he could not be more uh, on the, I don't want to go through the details on it, but he's everything that Richard Nixon wasn't, whether that's good or bad. And, and I'm talking about politics and lifestyle and all that stuff. Uh, 
what impact did it have on you that he became the head of that library for a long time? And I know the people that you know well there were just beside themselves that he was there. Yes, I, I, I think it was a big mistake on, on the part of the uh, leadership of the National Archives in Washington, D.C. to put Naftali uh, in, into Yorba Linda to run uh, the archives section of the Nixon Library. And, and that was a mistake that was made for whatever political reasons. Uh, everybody has... Uh, walked around the Nixon Library like they were walking on hot coals because of the controversy over Watergate and all that happened with Nixon and with with his men. The great news is that David Ferriero, the National Archivist of the United States of America, he is a Democrat, and, and in my book I praise him. This man is absolutely sensational. And he grabbed a hold of that library after Tim Naftali left, and he reorganized it. He put great leadership in place. The working relationship between the independent Nixon Foundation and the government side of the National Archives could not be better. It worked smoothly. We did, we did a $20 million renovation of the Nixon exhibits. I, I happen to have been... Uh, appointed by the board of directors to uh, to chair and run that operation, and we had nothing but cooperation with the National Archives and and the legacy of Tim Neftali at the Nixon Library is ancient history and and we all hope it disappears forever. Talk about how you did this book. Uh, <clears throat> the book was written by utilization of my uh, my diaries that I kept during the period that I worked in the White House, by all of the memorandums and materials that were collected by, that are part of the National Archives and are available in your Belinda, and by a treasure trove of letters between Bob Haldeman and myself, over 150 letters that uh, Joe Haldeman, Bob's wife, uh, gave to me after Bob passed away. They were the letters that I had written to Bob uh, in the early days of working with Richard Nixon. Plus, I, I had a gentleman by the name of David Fisher, who has uh worked with many authors over the years, and David had a system. He interviewed me over 30 times for three to four hours a session. We had over 800 pages of notes, and he, he, would, he would not only uh, take an issue, but he would ask me, he, he, he would probe, how, did, how were you feeling? How did you feel when this happened to you? How did you feel when... When, when the president uh, told you to go do whatever it might be or, or when Haldeman uh, got upset at me or what, you know, just really dug in. And so the, the way that we got the book together was by taking all of this material, getting it organized. David Fisher had a system for working with kind of a card file system and he he put together a first draft and then i took the draft along with my wife terry goodson who also by the way had worked in the nixon white house and and we spent weeks uh reworking the drafts and then i had uh or four friends that I had picked to be readers, and we massaged it, and that's the book. <laughs> that's the book that's coming out. By the way, in the sometime in your life, and <clears throat> I don't don't want to go into great detail. You were married to a woman named Susie. Is that right? Yes, Susie Howell Chapin. And you're now married to another woman. Did this experience of Watergate have an impact on that first marriage? 
Uh, I think that the, the uh, impact of Watergate, coupled with you know the, all of the, uh, the the other things that happen in life, yes, it had a, had an impact. But I uh, there there were other extenuating reasons for for uh, Susie and I separating. She was an absolutely wonderful person and uh it was a sad sad thing all around as most divorces are what impact did this experience at the white house have on the rest of your life the impact of working at the white house uh afforded me an absolutely fantastic life i i say that i i feel so fortunate that it happened to me when i was such a young man and not as it did with many of the other men when when it was the capstone of their careers because i was able to take all of the lessons that i learned positive and negative and to use them as building blocks throughout my life and i've had a very uh enriched wonderful life one where that is full of family and friends and and unique experiences uh and and that it was that base at the white house that that gave me that phenomenal uh footing to build the rest of my life you talked about the impact of God on your life, and I, this just kind of popped out at me as I was reading your book, that you, Bob Holloman, and uh, Mr. Ehrlichman were all Christian scientists. What did that have to do with your relationship during the White House years? Not much. Uh, the the uh, they Both uh, Bob Haldeman and John Ehrlichman were much more devout Christian scientists than I was. I went to a a Christian science Sunday school because my mother's parents were Christian science and my mother taught Christian science Sunday school. But by the time I was into my early teen years, uh, I was going to uh, Presbyterian church. I went to the Methodist church. I went to the union church. Uh, I, I, I was focused on going to uh, places of worship where the, the minister became the important thing more than than the ideology, if you will, of, or the of the religious beliefs. Uh, I, I I operated off of, and I still do. I, I love messages. I, I love Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, and and his power of positive thinking, and and so I I acclimated that way much more so than to the Christian science beliefs, uh, although I, I do believe that many of the tenets of Christian science uh, are, are healthy, and, healthy for me in terms of my mental attitude. This is just an observation, and I want your reaction to it. As you watched everybody go through that period, whether it's Haldeman, Ehrlichman, well, I could listen a number of other people. Um, the only one that I would question uh, who seemed to be anxious for a fight all the time was uh, Chuck Colson. Most of the, all these guys are dead. And as you look back on the administration, if it weren't for the mental attitude of Richard Nixon, would the rest of you all done, have done what you did? In other words, was he the he led the and you you did it say in your book that he was somewhat paranoid and that he was always had enemies and fighting everybody and if you read the memos that came out right after he was president and Bruce uh, Otis's book you see how how he was furious and angry about the media all the time um, would the rest of the people that you knew there be like they were if it, he hadn't been the leader. What a wonderful question. Um, I guess the truth is I don't know. Um, 
we served uh, we served a man who uh, was our leader, who was opinionated. But I I think one of the things that's key in my book is understanding what made that man tick and where that anger and resentment came from. And also, I think there is a over-exaggeration of how uh, intensely partisan, if you want to use that word, or angry he was. Uh, each, each one of these incidences, and I'm not, I don't want to make any excuses for him, but, but you have to put into context when he writes or dictates a memorandum and, and so forth, what are all of the other aspects of what was going on at that particular moment? And what, what caused the reaction that you are reading and reacting to all, all these years later? Uh, what, what was really behind that? And it, I, I believe that we're seeing any number of historians, whether it's Conrad Black and, and his book or Evan Thomas and his book or Farrell and his book, these, these, Michael Dobbs, all, the, all, these, all these people are looking at this a little different now. So we're, we're getting more information. Uh, I had a, had, had a unique experience with uh, uh, the historian De, uh, Douglas Brinkley and Luke Nichter, where they, they said, you know, th- this book is filled with new details on, on almost every page, and, and we're learning new things, and it's going to force us to reassess Richard Nixon once again. So, you know, not that you're using stereotypes, but there's just a lot of stereotyping of Richard Nixon, uh, the paranoid thing being one. And, and yes, I, I do use, use that term in, in the book, but I, I modify it significantly and I try to give it perspective because Richard Nixon was anything but evil. He was an incredibly good man. One of my talking points for, uh, some talks that I'm going to be given is, is kind of a unique one because I think Richard Nixon is just one incredible role model for young men. I had, I got an email from a young person working on the Hill who is in the foreign policy arena and works for a democratic congressperson. And that this young man had studied Chinese, gone to to Peking to study, and wrote me because his role model in terms of where his aspirations in the field of foreign policy are Richard Nixon. And and it it blew me away. And I I think we're going to see more and more of, of, of a recognition that this man is a, a lot more balanced and had a, a lot more to offer our country than, than, than some of the ways it's been characterized. A couple of quick things. You worked around this man for how many years? Uh, I worked around, around him for 20 years. You grew up where? I grew up in uh, Wichita, Kansas, and then uh, moved to Southern California when I was 14. I asked you about the religious connection earlier. How about the fraternity collection connection with guys like Ron Ziegler and others? You were Sigma Chi, you were president of the fraternity, and you had others that worked around you. How significant is that, not just in the Nixon administration, any administration where people are a part of networking? Well, I, 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 I think the networking part of the political 
situation is is huge, whether you're talking about the people from Georgia that came up with Jimmy Carter or whether you're talking about the collection of Californians that were with Ronald Reagan. I mean, uh, the Texans with the Bushes. I mean, it's it's endless. Uh, but but really, the, the Sigma Chi aspect of, at USC uh, is uh, I, I, uh, it's interesting because Sandy Quinn, uh, who was actually in the Reagan administration, uh, was Nixon's press, uh, assistant press secretary under Herb Klein in the 1962 gubernatorial campaign. San- Sandy was kind of the ringleader of the Sigma Chi group. Uh, that got involved with Richard Nixon in 1962, and that was that involved Ron Ziegler, Tim Elborn, but really not me. I I, I came in through a different door. Uh, I was hired by Herb Kambach and Bob Haldeman, and Sa- Sandy was not involved in that hiring. But it was uh, it, it's inter- interesting that there were so many Sigma Chi's. Uh, involved that that go back for so many years. I could talk to you a lot longer, but you've got other things to do, I'm sure, Dwight Chapman. And the name of this book is called The President's Man, The Memoirs of Nixon's Trusted Aid. Dwight Chapman's an appointment secretary and a lot of other things uh, for Richard Nixon in the White House. And you can read that account in the book. Uh, And we thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Brian. This is it's been terrific. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.